When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I make my own rules, one Bonko party at a time. I write history and I read celebrities. I am JMZ. Life is a classroom and I'm here to teach. Welcome to another exciting episode of Historians on Housewives. You're here with me, Casey. Dr. Jane Mill, the millionaires or original JMZ on the Peloton leaderboard. Max Spear, founder of Peloton. (laughs) (laughs) So today's episode is uh, a special one for the month of July. Um, Parts one and two of really a longer four-part series on early America, specifically the Revolutionary Period. Um, However, this special part one and two with Dr. Sean Gallagher, yes, he just um, was awarded his doctorate, (laughs) is extra special for Max and I because we did our master's with Sean at San Francisco State University. So we've known him a very long time. And, uh, you know, it's like that scene at the end of the office where Andy says something along the lines of, I wish I knew it was the good old days when I was in them. And that's definitely um, our relationship with Sean. Always a sweet spot there. So, and what's extra cool is, like I said, this is parts one and two of kind of a longer four-part um series on the revolutionary period because after the episodes with Sean, we're going to release a two part, um, with Adam McNeil, um, which will be very, very exciting. And he is a fantastic, um, pop culture reality TV buff. Um, in addition to his excellent work on the revolutionary period. So to get us going, if it's okay, with you, Jessica and Max, I'd like to give us a couple of facts uh, or some grounding content, if you will, about 1776 and Hamilton, the musicals, because this is what we're talking about with Sean in lieu of more uh, reality TV based things. We're going to be very pop culture in the moment um, around this 4th of July month. So 17. 17- <laughs> this 4th of July moment month. <laughs> 
I feel like we should have one of those like patriotic songs in the background. Yeah, you mean like in in light of the fact that July is the month where U.S. the U.S. is consumed with their own origin story. Oh yeah, that's and what an origin it was. But um, bum. Yes. Uh, and I think Sean and Adam are going to be perfect back to back guests to help us really. Uh, explore this narrative so 1776 came out in 1969 and it was turned into a movie in 1972 so this is kind of right uh you know kind of in line with the 200 year celebration of america you know so the (laughs) bicentennial bicentennial so um it got great reviews as it came out. It ran for 1,217 performances on Broadway, winning three Tony Awards, including Best Musical. When it came out as a movie, it starred actor William Daniels as John Adams. I was already an adult uh, living life in 2020 not really thinking about 1776 at all but having a painful rewatch of the series boy meets world on disney plus <laughs> when i realized that oh my gosh of course william daniels is playing mr feeney at none other than john adams high it's like a kind of a big joke as the history teacher um whoa whoa mind uh, blown uh really bad history but uh the history teacher <laughs> So I can't believe it took me all those years to put all of that together. Then Hamilton uh, debuted in 2015, hit Disney Plus in 2020. At the 70th Tony Awards, Hamilton received a record-breaking 16 nominations and won 11 awards, including Best Musical. And it received the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. It also inspired Ishmael Reed's 2019 hit, uh, 2019 hit play, I should say, The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda. So there's certainly uh, a lot of acclaim for Hamilton and a lot of criticism of Hamilton. You don't see that a lot. Like, Sound of Music doesn't have that. Uh, Gypsy doesn't have that, where somebody writes the counterplay to... The some production, right? It's only Hamilton. But let me say this, because I learned, thank you, social media, I learned from social media that Toni Morrison actually funded um, the, 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 the play, the counter-narrative. So that should tell you everything. The greatest of all time. That should tell you a little something about Ham- Hamilton and how we should now look at it. And especially in light of the Heights controversy over skin color. Mm-hmm. Um you know, everyone has their eye up a little bit about Miranda. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave the, the discussion about teasing pluses and minuses out for Sean. Cause he has a lot of feelings and, um, you know, he's definitely going to give us a lot of context about 1776 and a lot of context about Hamilton and we're going to have a good time. So without further ado, Sean Gallagher is a historian of enslaved people and state slaveholding in the American Revolution. He has just finished his PhD in history at UC Davis, and he'll be starting a postdoc at the David Center for the American Revolution at the APS this fall. 
What, uh, Jessica, APS, the acronym? American Philosophical Society. Thank you. Isn't it? <laughs> yes, you're right. It is. It, it is. is. it is. Interesting fact. David Library of the American Revolution used to be based in Washington's Crossing, where Washington crossed the Delaware. It has now been moved and is housed in Philadelphia. So literally, all these wonderful centers are in Philadelphia at the same time. Philadelphia. Yeah. Go, go ahead That's and call so me for a lifeline. 1776. Yeah. Philadelphia. Call me for a lifeline anytime. <laughs> Even as I read it, I was like, I should... I should know that acronym and it's not coming to me. So, well, you saw I had it 1 1000, 2 1000, 3 1000, American Philosophical S- Society. <laughs> it's a Friday. We, we like slow the pace down here. <laughs> so, without further ado, welcome Sean Gallagher. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm excited to do this. We're excited to have you here. Can you kick us off by sharing your Real Housewives tagline? I bring class to the class struggle. <laughs> That's pretty top notch. That's yeah. classy. I like how up. simple it is. <laughs> it's simple with well, a big you know, impact. Yeah. But is it? it That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's like a... No, definitely. It's a it's a very Leninist tagline. Simple words, but deep meaning. <laughs> okay, I have to back up. I have to back up. How do you all know each other? And I know I know this, but you know, normally Casey says to me, "Now, how did you meet Jessica?" So <laughs> what I need to say is, "Now, how did you meet Max and Casey?" Uh. I, I met them at San Francisco State doing the MA program there. and On our very great- first day. Yeah. Yeah, it was a yeah. monumentous day for me because I met my soon-to-be wife that day, and then I met Sean Gallagher. Same day. Yeah. Wow. And which one, which which meeting was more fortuitous and, and uh, more important in the long run, you think? Let's be honest, Sean, you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I at least would have said it, remain, it remain, remains to be seen, but you know. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I was sitting next to Sean, but across the table from Max. Oh, that's so, right. You got to look in those eyes. Yeah. I, what did the early years of Macy look like? Is that one of your <laughs> nicknames? Macy. Uh, uh, Macy. Macy. What did the early years of Macy look like before they were a Macy? Well, oh, they were like. Oh, no, you know, you go. No, go for it, Sean. You, I want to hear your perspective on this. This is going to be funny. <laughs> My perspective is really like that. Um, they it, And correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, this is just my perspective. You're wrong. But that they very quickly became like, I felt like they were kind of like the mom and dad of our cohort in a lot of ways. Like they really, like in a really good way. Like they kept things together. They, they planned events for us. Um and like they who do you also, think like, really planned those events? Wait, wait, you know me, Sean. Who do you think planned those events? You think I was planning those? Events? <laughs> That's true. That's Max true. Had I had nothing to do with the planning. Had nothing to do with the planning. But no, yeah. So like, kind of mom and dad of the cohort in the best way possible. They tag team in seminar against like the more, um, let's just say uh, reactionary types. graduate students in the court. Yes, exactly. Oh my God, I couldn't imagine the two of them together in seminar. I've had them separately in seminar. I can't imagine the two of them together. 
We were a four. I don't it's think it powerful. would be. A, I mean, I'm already on the podcast, but I really can't imagine of them both their little OCD vein poking out of the side of their head as they're getting ready to tell someone how wrong they are. <laughs> well, the funny thing. Oh, it was so good. The I mean. Like, Sean was even at our wedding, right? So we go back. Uh, I feel like Sean is, like, an integral part of that, I don't know, career of the Macy, grad student. Of the and, the, and, the, and the Macy the Macy experience. Um, definitely lots of social outings. Um, and uh, I remember this really awkward moment where there was, like, an unrequited like love and someone else in the cohort was really upset that I was dating Max, but then it turned into them screaming in seminar. And that was when the professors realized that Max and I had gotten together after the first day, (laughs) but we tried to play it cool. We tried to make it like without it being like a thing that people, that that faculty knew about uh, being professional and all that. And just this one day, this this other male grad student who like, lost it. We can refer to him as French press because he always used to bring a French press, like a full blown French press, into class. <laughs> and he had a label on the side of the French press that he it was like a na- like a paper napkin that he wrote in crayon, and it said boiler maker oh on the side god. or ulcer maker. Oh ulcer maker. my good god! And so I remember, and like I like in that moment when this other student finally like let it out that they were upset that I chose Max which it wasn't even a choice let's be real um he did call me up previous to that drunk challenging me to a duel <laughs> so good but I just remember Is looking this person at in their profession no 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 oh. they are not are we sure I'm positive I would love this story but um, I think he works for me doesn't he? Oh no, I probably shouldn't give any information yeah, about him. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, tell wow. me later. Tell me later. But I'll, I'll, yeah. add, I'll later, edit it Sean. out. I'm all about it. I'll edit it out. I just but. remember seeing Sean's face, and Sean was like arms fully outstretched, white knuckles on the table, but like he wasn't breathing. It was like it. I've had a lot of moments in seminar. I would care not to repeat, but that obviously takes like the cake. That was like the worst. I mean, I can only imagine how you felt, Casey. Obviously, like, you were, like, the victim in that situation in a lot of ways. But, like, it was, like, the worst thing I've ever seen said or done in a seminar. Because I think at one point, I remember specifically, at one point, he said that, like, he said something like, I know you think I'm ugly or something. He shouted. And I was like, I need to get out of the room. Yeah. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He said this to Casey. He didn't say, I in mean, front of the entire said, seminar. I mean, we were actually talking about a book and he started screaming about how I rejected him and that he know that he knows that I think he's ugly. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so like like I, when I say that Sean was like really a part of the Macy experience, he went through the trauma too. <laughs> That's true. Wow. The rocky beginnings. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I have an impact on, on, on men, but not so much to come to seminar and (laughs) wow. Well, and Eva was the, was the faculty member for that particular class. And I remember her coming up at the break and she called a break like right after this. She's like, I think we need a 15 minute break. And, uh, like (laughs) (laughs) she, she's like, she's like, so you and Max are an item? <laughs> and it was just so awkward. Uh, so, 
I mean, even <laughs> Kelly has an opinion about the matter. That's true. I can hear him. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we know each other, Jessica. Oh, my. Well, that <laughs> that was worth going into the archive for. But don't bump. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a fun story from our MA program, Sean. You'll remember that we had a field trip to see a live performance of 1776 in San Francisco. So I was wondering if you could talk about this experience and use this as a moment to set the scene, pulling us into the history of your academic journey. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'll admit, and I'll admit that when we went and saw the musical, I was not really that familiar with it. Um, I knew I want, I, I was already studying the American revolution and I knew that's what I wanted to pursue at the PhD level, but I wasn't aware of the musical. Um, and so, and what's interesting to note about that is the song in there that's specifically about slavery and the, and its relationship to the revolution. Like, um, uh, what is it? Uh, for, was it tobacco, rum, and slaves? Molasses to wine. Molasses to rum to slaves. Yes. That's right. Molasses to rum to slaves. Um, I remember that the song actually didn't have a huge impact on me the first time I saw the musical. Um, but I've kind of returned to that song later as I developed the kind of historian I was going to be. And so um, just to kind of give a brief background. So when I started my PhD program, I thought I was going to continue what I did uh, for kind of one of my major MA research projects, which was looking at kind of class conflict in the urban North during the American Revolution, um, particularly like uh, how the interests of like artisans, particularly poor artisans like cordwainers, how they navigated the politics of the revolution. Um, and so when I started to begin my second year research project at UC Davis and our, at, in our program, there's a second year, year long research project. I started thinking, well, one way into the story of labor and the politics of the revolution is to just look at the labor that, ins that people did for the revolution. Um, that is, and so I wanted to look at kind of like the labor of artisans and, uh, that kind of like made munitions, um, and that built the ships. Uh, for the war effort during the revolution. And my advisor, Ellen Hardigan O'Connor, noted, she said, well, you're going to have to decide what kind of story you want to tell because in the Southern colonies, that labor would have been done almost exclusively by enslaved people. Um, and that really struck me because um, I don't think I'd actually considered that. Um, and so on her recommendation, I began to do a little more reading and I came to the conclusion that really, um, South Carolina, their state archives had a lot of great kind of resources, both treasurer's records and then kind of pay bill books that traced the labor that enslaved people did um, for their for the war effort. And I thought, okay, well, here's what I'll do. I'll go to South Carolina and I'll do this one chapter on enslaved people's labor for the war effort. And that can be, you know, that can be one chapter in a dissertation that's about labor in the American Revolution more broadly. Um, but as soon as I got there and I started digging into the records, I, I was struck by not only the kind of ubiquity of enslaved people's labor for the revolution, but something I hadn't really considered, which is that the South Carolina state Navy board, South Carolina had a state Navy, um, 
in addition to requesting assistance from the Continental Navy, that the South Carolina State Navy Board themselves owned slaves. That Of course, they rented slaves, but that they also bought slaves. And not only did they buy, uh, buy slaves um, for their shipyards, they, br- they bought slaves for their, rope, uh, for their rope walk, their rope yard. Um, and then they impressed and rented a massive amount of enslaved people on top of that. And so I knew when I was looking at these records that this was a story that really needed to be told. That a lot of historians probably intuitively know and understand that enslaved people did labor that contributed to the war effort, but there hasn't been much focused work on patriot institutions in the revolution, state governments, Navy boards, war commissioners, as actual slave owners, as slave holders. And so the project kind of ballooned from there. And I came back from South Carolina knowing that that's what I was going to do, that I was going to write a dissertation about state slavery. Um, And that's kind of where it's gone from there. I haven't kept it a South Carolina only project I kind of move all the way from Maryland um, down to Georgia. Um, But that is the story kind of that now I focus on, which is that how state governments came to possess slaves and what they used those enslaved people for and how enslaved people and how, and this is most important, the ways that resisting state impressment, resisting state ownership were just as important to enslaved people's politics as resisting their individual owners. Um, and that's kind of become the focus of my, of my research. I'm sorry. I'm not sure if that really answers your question. I feel like I went off on a tangent. I think that was great, Sean. I mean, I loved it. I loved it. It took me back to the early days of my dissertation when, oh, okay, we're not, this isn't about me. This is about your work. But um, I loved it. I loved it. It made me understand it. So it worked. Thank you. Talk a little more about the archival work you did for your project and how that influenced the way you're thinking about labor history in early America. Sure. So, if you just looked at the archive, if you like just looked at my footnotes, just looked at the archives that I, that I work in, you would think I'm like an old crusty, dusty military historian, honestly. Um, I look at Continental Army Quartermaster. Uh, I'm still laughing books. at crusty, dusty. Can you give me one second? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I miss you. You're like so far away. That was hilarious. Crusty dust. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, you can keep going. Yeah. I've I've controlled myself. No. Q crusty dusty, take two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um yeah, I mean I look at the crusty dusty military records that um I look at the Continental Army kind of uh, quartermasters and their correspondence and their account books. I look at a lot of state logistical records. I look at uh, Virginia during the revolution created war bo- a war board and a board of trade that their main goals were to uh, essentially acquire supplies um, and organize the production of military material. Um, and I look at how part of the military material that they're trying to collect is enslaved people. Um, uh and I, I look at other kinds of public works records, right? I look at Navy board journals. Um, 
And I look at all of these institutions and collectively I call them the slaving state. And what I mean by the slaving state is the kind of broad uh, base of organizations at the state government level and uh, the interstate level through coordination by the Continental Army, the broad kind of boards, commissioners, um, boards and commissioners that uh, bought confiscated slaves or confiscated slaves themselves mm-hmm. um, and managed the labor of enslaved people during the American Revolution. Um, and so, I mean, military historians know about these records. People who are writing military histories of the war cite these kinds of logistical records when they're trying to talk about, um, you know, like how the war is fought. Uh, and certainly the military correspondence of the major leaders in the Continental Army Southern Department, right? Like Nathaniel Green, Benjamin Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, military historians have worked with these records for years. And sometimes they will mention, um, you know, that they'll mention uh, how the Continental Army is going out and impressing bond people. Or they'll mention how the South Carolina legislature loaned 450 bond, uh, confiscated bond people to the Continental Army in the last year of the war. They'll mention those things, but that's not the story they were trying to tell, so they just moved on from them. Right. Right. At the same think, time... Sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, nerd alert for our listeners, mm-hmm. I mean, the greatest joy I had as a young dissertator was to mm-hmm. read, like, the uh, Maryland Council on Public Safety and a few other... Mm. records that talked about um, not just impressment, but you also see these tiny, tiny flicks of when, when black people tried to resist. So this is all good stuff. I mean, I should have warned you, like I, Casey should have warned you that when Adam McNeil was here, Casey correctly assessed, was it Adam or someone else correctly assessed that I'll be going back to early America very soon after my next project. So you're like, you're like totally speaking my academic love language. So by all (laughs) means continue. And then I'll get, I'll get to another question. I want to ask you to bring us back to musicals, but I interrupted you. So please continue. Tell us. No, that's awesome. And I can't wait to read uh, what you write. Um, Well, I, I guess I would just finish up saying really quickly is that, so if military historians have often used these records, these same records, but are not telling stories about slavery, they're telling stories about the war effort. Um, then historians of slavery in the revolution have also, I believe kind of overlooked a lot of these records that much yeah. of the history of slavery in the American revolution ultimately is about, well, what did the founders think about slavery, which is a different question than what did enslaved people actually do? or what did the founders actually do to enslaved people? Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of historians on slavery and the revolution will look at kind of the legislative records. They'll look at the writings of the founders. um, And then they'll have a section in there about like Dunmore's proclamation. um, And that becomes the story. Here's what the founders thought about slavery. And then here's enslaved people making use of kind of like um, a black loyalist path to freedom. Um, But what gets lost in there is really the everyday politics of slavery in the revolution, which is, which takes place in these really anonymous Patriot boards and commissioners, right? And that enslaved people are fleeing to Dunmore, but they're not always fleeing their slaveholders when they go to Dunmore. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they're they're fleeing impressment gangs, right? They're fleeing confiscation commissioners. Right. And so that story Mm -hmm. 
of the revolution in slavery, I think has been overlooked. And that's the kind of gap I try to fill. Um, I'm interested to know uh, how well organized are these slavery state institutions that you're looking at in the midst of the revolution? Um, if that if that question makes sense, like like I'm thinking about the yeah, no, the, makes- the like the chaos of the revolution really like opens up everything. And then you have the patriot side having to come up with. Um, councils and internal institutions to go up against the British, right? And so, like, how well yeah. managed is it? Uh, poorly, I guess. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I'll put it this way. Most of the public works I look at um, are failures in terms of public works. So mm-hmm. a lot of my second chapter is about an iron furnace called the Chatham Iron Furnace. Mm-hmm. which is in North Carolina's back country and the North Carolina provincial convention and which becomes the North Carolina legislature has the goal of using this furnace to produce, they want to produce cannon. They want to produce shot. They want to produce all kinds of military material for, for the continental army and for the state militias. And what they do is when they use the slaves that they have confiscated from loyalists, they, they go on these abandoned plantations that loyalists have abandoned. They arrest uh, entire enslaved families on those plantations and they transport them to that work in the back country to produce all this ma- military material. Now the, that back country iron forge is works as a carceral place. It works as a place to, we can't auction confiscated slaves right now. The state is enough right. people. So it works to hold enslaved people, but there's never significant military production that comes out of there. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. I mean, part of it is like, there's a whole other story to be told about like how many people swindle state governments in the revolution by saying like, Oh yeah, I can like build all this stuff for you. And then it never happens. Um, but the other thing is that like enslaved people like resist. And also the, it's not like, it's not like an iron furnace that went out and rented enslaved laborers who might have experience with ironworks. So that, those aren't the, like experienced ironmongers are not the people that are hired deliberately by the, uh, by the furnace owners to come work at the, the furnace. These are like families. There's like children at this place. Right. And like, so the superintendent of Chatham furnace is writing to the legislature all the time. Like, like we can't produce iron. Like, like a lot of these people are too young to work. Some of them are too old to work. Some of them are disabled. Right. And so like in the legend. And so ultimately what I try to show is that, how should I, how should I put this? Ultimately what I try to show is that most of these public works are failures in terms of production, but they're absolute successes in terms of like a carceral strategy to hold different kinds of unmastered bond people. And ultimately the legislature makes a choice that the carceral goal is more important than the military goal. Okay. Slavery question. Mm -hmm. Slavery question. Um, Is that true across the board when we think of iron forges? So we, we think about Maryland and Virginia and the linkages with Africa that it was known that, um, certain groups were better at iron forging than others. And they were the ones that were forcibly removed mm-hmm. to this, to this country. So Maryland and Virginia enslaved people have already a sense of iron working. 
as their specialty. Yeah. Or somewhere like South Carolina, they um, the specialty might be indigo or or cotton. I'm just wondering if you see a different difference regionally, because what we're also talking about is a particularly kind of specialized labor that that you know you're putting the class into class politics, right? Um, yeah. Even if you're um, uh, taking or impressing a particular family in South Carolina, the same might not hold true in the upper up, upper South, where um, people were deliberately selected from like populations that were skilled in iron work. Just a complete nerd question. We can edit it out. I'm just wondering if you can no, yeah. consider that. No, that's an excellent question. And I've tried to think about that. I should have put it. Like, I think that that plays a role. I think that the cultural and regional backgrounds of the enslaved people that end up in these different works does make a difference. Right. Mm -hmm. And that may go away to go a ways toward explaining, um, why the confiscated ironworks in Maryland, which I've looked a little bit at, but not very deeply, why they Mm -hmm. don't necessarily have these production problems. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think part of it is, I do think for me, at least the kind of the most important factor is really that I should put it that Patriot councils of safety, Mm -hmm. Patriot provincial conventions, state confiscation commissioners, like like the slaves that are in public ownership are not generally enslaved people that were bought deliberately by States because they were looking for a particular kind of laborer. I understand. Yeah. Yeah, that like states come into possession of entire plantations and then they need to like figure out ways to hold them and they don't know how to do that. And so they just start sending them wherever. Mm. Um, and I do yeah, think that that's body. also part I think of it's, Yeah. Sorry, sorry. I think this is fascinating. I'm like, mm-hmm. now I'm so stoked to read your book because I've, I've actually never heard of this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. 
Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. About families being taken to forges and them not knowing what to do. I mean, this is just, you're onto something here. I'm, I'm looking at Thank it from you. an entirely different standpoint. Like, what? What do you mean they didn't know what to do in the Iron Forge? But they're looking, they're, this is conscripted labor. They're, they don't yeah. really care what your specialty is. They just need bodies. So, okay. All right, so we have gone down the rabbit hole of the American <laughs> Revolution. Um, I couldn't be more happy. <laughs> I couldn't be more happy and more in my element. But let's back up for our listeners and even for ourselves to go back to the issues of musicals and how mm-hmm. popular culture is trying to teach us about the American Revolution, but really is it. So can you tell us, who was the real Alexander Hamilton? Who was the real Hamilton? Um... I don't think he was Lynn Manuel Miranda. Um, I think. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll let me say this. Agreed. I think Agreed he's Sean's boyfriend. boyfriend. <laughs> 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 I, I, yeah. Okay. So, like, I think. Yeah. Um, okay. Are we having a crush on on Lynn or on Alexander Hamilton? I just need to understand the the romantic. Sean play. has. So, so to go back, and I don't know if I'll keep this in, Sean. So, if you don't feel comfortable with this, that's totally fine. I'll kind of no, go um, for it. But um, Sean and I used to argue all the time in our MA program about the real Hamilton, um, and I would just I I would be devil's advocate all the time, advocating for Jefferson's policies. Although, like since these arguments with Sean, I have come to his position and have told him as such. But Sean had. <laughs> There's really no other way to describe it. A man crush on Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> God. I, Just like Sean and, and the, I have man, uh, like crushes on young Eugene Genovese. Yeah. Not young. Not, uh, no, no, not, no, not, not uh, Eugene, Eugene Debs. Yeah, Eugene Debs. Debs. Not Eugene Debs. I got, I like went with the <laughs> wrong are you Eugene. Trying to tell us, but are, are you trying to tell us something? That is a way <laughs> different set of politics. It was a really different set of politics. Are you trying to a young Marxist? Are you trying to tell us something? Okay, so who yeah. was the real Alexander Hamilton? Okay. Paramore okay. politician. Yes, yeah. So I think the re- I'll put it. Th- I think the real Alexander Hamilton was. Actually, let me put this a different way. Sorry, I'm collecting my thoughts. Um. The real Alexander Hamilton was anti-slavery, but he was not an abolitionist. And I think that that's a key distinction. Um, I think mo- if you actually take the body of Hamilton's writings on slavery and enslaved people as a whole, what you see is a structure is almost what we, and he did, he wouldn't have this language of like a structural critique. That's so I guess that's anachronistic for me to say that, but what jumps out at me is a kind of structural critique of slavery, that slavery is something that holds back a particular kind of national development that he's interested in, and that slaveholders have a set of politics that he is aware of great against the, the his own politics and the politics that um, are cohering in the Federalist Party, even though the Federalists have a contingency in South Carolina and what have you. Um, and I And so he's anti-slavery in those ways. And he's also anti-slavery in a general kind of um, you know, the New York Manumission Society that he helps found in the 1780s 
has this kind of like Christian universalist idea of humanity, right? And they ground their opposition to slavery in that. And I think Hamilton supports those in the abstract, but I don't think those what those are like what motivates him or like really is like at the front and center of his thinking when it comes to slavery. I think ultimately he has ideas about how slavery holds back the United States. He has that in the 1790s with a particular kind of economic program, but he has that during the American revolution too, in which he is a kind of a boisterous supporter of the plan by John Lawrence and others to, uh, to essentially man- uh, emancipate two to 3000 enslaved men in the South and raise them into a free black regiment. Right. And, he, in the process of trying to argue for this free black regiment, he he is open about a certain kind of anti-slavery sentiment, right? He has that famous line where he says, you know, like much of what we think about black people is fantasy and it's not grounded in reason or nature. Um, but ultimately, what really frustrates him and what really motivates him about the black about the black regiment plan is that black people are a resource and because Southerners are, are slaveholders, they're too stupid to realize the resource they have. Right. Um, and that's a very particular kind of, again, that's a particular kind of idea about how slavery is a hindrance on a structural level. Right. And, or a political level rather than opposition to slavery because of an interest in African-American rights. And I think that, and I mean, I don't want to say that he's, he doesn't have anti-slavery sentiments because he clearly does, but I don't think that that's the front and center of, of his concerns when he writes about slavery. I mean, okay. but then how do we um, grapple with something like him marrying uh, into one of the biggest slave-owning families in the North, if not the new nation? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think um, who's that person? I want to give her credit, but she just wrote an article that came out uh, recently, right? That was looking at Alexander Hamilton's cash books where it's like, you know, Hamilton was financing uh, slave purchases for his friends. He was using slaves from the Schuyler family. Um, um, I want to get her name on record here. Uh, Jesse Sir, uh, Sir Philippi. What is oh, it? Okay. Um, Jesse uh, Sir Filippi. Oh, okay. Um, and she she wrote an article that's like for the Schuyler Mansion site that's called an odious and immoral thing: Alexander Hamilton's hidden history as an enslaver. Um, and you know what she finds there is that like at an individual level, like Hamilton is like financing the purchase of slaves for his friends. He's using enslaved servants in his household, um, some that are probably coming from the Schuyler household, but others he may be purchasing himself. It's unclear. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, and I think that, too, needs to be understood when we talk about anti-slavery founders, that what unites someone like Hamilton and Jefferson for as different as they are, even different when it comes to ideas about slavery, mm-hmm. what unites them is this idea that like slavery is a problem, but it's like a problem for a future generation that there's very little that can be done for it now. Right. And that like the reason in always oh, the reason that it can't happen, that abolition can't happen now is because of these ideas that black people aren't fit for freedom. They're not ready for freedom, right? These kinds of discourses. Um, and so, 
slavery is a moral problem and slavery is something that will need to be politically solved. But because of that, like the individual, like it's not really a problem of individual agency, right? It doesn't matter if Jefferson owns slaves themselves. It doesn't matter that Hamilton is trading in enslaved labor because it's just too big a problem for one individual to solve anyways. Right. And I think like that's part of why groups like the New York Manumission Society include New York slaveholders, right? Yeah. It's because slavery is seen as such a massive problem to be solved by a future generation that they can kind of absolve themselves individually. Like, well, you know, like I can't get rid of like my slaves. Right. And like, what would me individually getting rid of my slaves do? Right. And so they remove their own agency and kick it, the can into the future. And I think that's a key part of that early manumission society vision of abolition. So in Hamilton, we see two different cabinet battles that take place between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. And I know that you are not a presidential historian by any means. And so I, I want to talk about these white house battles, um, but rather from this, rather than this presidential history perspective, what I want you to do is help us think about how we should understand these particular moments for the way that slavery was shaping or not shaping these discussions and issues um, in the revolutionary period and in the founding of the new nation. Sure. Yeah. So I think, and, um, and I'm actually drawing a little bit here on a book we read in our MA program, or I read it. I don't, maybe I just read this with Eva. I'm not sure if, if, if you read it. Do you remember Drew McCoy's An Elusive Republic? We never. Did I just took, read that for Eva? I we, do. We I never do. took <laughs> any of Eva's revolutionary um, history seminars. It was just you. Oh my God. You missed out. Um, so I'm drawing a little bit on, on something that Drew McCoy has said. And I think, I think it generally, I mean, it's not the perfect analogy, but I think it generally holds true when you're talking about these early fights in the Washington administration, which is that Hamilton has a vision of U.S. development through time and Jefferson has a vision of U.S. development through space, right? So for Hamilton, like the future prosperity of the United States as a nation is about biding time, deal with British commercial discrimination, stay neutral in the French Revolutionary Wars, um, and just engage in commerce with all sides, um, play the Anglophile to the extent that it's necessary not to piss off Britain, um, and just buy, and the U.S. should just bide its time until it's a major commercial power, right? And then for Jefferson, it's about U.S. expansion through space, right? That it's about the reproduction of a certain kind of idealized um, agricultural republic, right? And that expanding westward means one, it doesn't like we don't have to pretend that we like the British, and two, it means we're ultimately we need to kind of deal with these other empires more politically because they also own a lot of this land in the West. Um, in addition to native people's claims, of course. Uh, so, and so I think that's like sets the stage for their differences. And so where does, where slavery plays a role, <clears throat> where slavery plays a role in this is really important, 
right? Not just in the kind of the obvious way that we might think, which is that we know that Jefferson's expansion through space is going to be the expansion of the plantation complex, right? And that he may have these theories about diffusion, about how westward development will um, kind of, that westward development of the yeoman class will allow for the the kind of de-evolution of slavery somehow. Um, We know that that's not going to come to pass. But I think also the development through time side is important for kind of Hamilton's ideas about slavery in certain ways. Um, Just trying to collect collect my thoughts here. Um, One interesting thing about Hamilton's politics towards slavery, which I don't think that many people talk about, is his response and his reaction to, and really the Federalist Party's reaction to, the fact that British, that the, that, um, the British Empire evacuates 3,000 free people from New York in what to Americans is a violation of the Treaty of Peace in 1783, right? So Article 7 of the 1783 Article of um, Treaty of Paris, right, says that His Britannic Majesty will not, you know, quote-unquote, carry off any Negroes um, or other property of American citizens. And then Carlton in New York nonetheless evacuates 3,000 black loyalists. Um, and so... Like across the board, if you look at what the founders are writing in the 1780s and even into the 1790s, when they talk about Britain, they're constantly talking about like, first, they're talking about Britain needs to actually physically return those people, right? That like Britain actually needs to like physically like bring those people back. And then when it's very clear that that's not going to happen, the Britain needs to pay us. We need financial compensation, compensation for the slaves they freed during the revolution. Um, Hamilton, very early on, in 1783, even before the British have left, Hamilton's not really that motivated on that issue, right? Like, he admits, like, he's like, yeah, like, it was probably against Article 7 for them to do it, but, you know, like, that sucks, but we should still keep our end of the bargain, right? He's not, in other words, he's not interested in, in, as some founders are, in, uh, throwing out the treaty in 1783, and he's not interested in really pursuing it heavily as a diplomatic issue in the years that follow. And ultimately, you know, what does the Federalist Party do? Like the Jay Treaty completely gives up the issue when John Jay goes in the 1790s to go negotiate <clears throat> this commercial and political treaty with Britain. Right, all the Southern slaveholders say, and get us financial compensation for uh, the Black loyalists, and Jay doesn't. And he actually gives up on the issue relatively easily. And he does so with Hamilton's knowledge. And Hamilton, who's already out of the administration at this point because of his, you know, affair and everything else. Um, Hamilton writes a series of letters to Washington where he's just like, honestly, like it's not worth the fight. Like Hamilton is like very, Hamilton essentially kind of convinces the Washington administration that, um, and, you know, this is hard, right? Because Washington himself is a major slaveholder who loses enslaved people to the evacuations in New York. Um, and, but Hamilton plays a role in kind of getting Washington to accept the Jay Treaty, which gives up on the issue of the Black Loyalists, right? And that's part of the development through time, right? It's part of the, like, why does Hamilton want the Jay Treaty? Hamilton wants the Jay Treaty because he just wants peace with Britain so the U.S. can develop commercially. But then here come these Southern slaveholders with their issues, right? And they're demanding all this money for the slaves that ran away. And here they are mucking up things again. And so it's back to that kind of structural critique, 
right? Where slavery isn't just bad in a moral sense. It's the idea that like slaveholders are just like, they're just two steps behind when it comes to building a modern nation state. And I think that is what animates some of those cabinet battles. <clears throat> Sorry, that was really long winded. No, thank you, Sean. Answer. That was awesome. No, thank you. That was a great answer. So thank you. Can we talk about historical memory around the revolution? Uh, and specifically, how are these musicals shaping what the public knows about this period? Uh, and, and, and more importantly, like what uh, do these musicals obscure? Yeah, so I think if I have to say something positive about Hamilton, I guess, I would say that the musical that is, uh, I guess I would say that I don't know. Is this too cheerleadery? If I say like, I guess any history, any public interest in history is good that like, we're like so thirsty and starved for relevance that we should just take it. Um, dude, 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 <laughs> like, dude, like I'm going to use my California dude, like dude, yeah. <laughs> dude, we are literally doing a podcast linking reality television to history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we are true. literally using reality tv in our mm-hmm. classes as a form of actual pedagogy so really i mean i think i think you are in good company okay all right fair enough good, good point good point um yeah no i mean so i think there are those positive aspects about it that i think how many people would even know like some of these figures, not necessarily Hamilton, but like who would know about like John Lawrence, right? Um, uh, who would know about, who would know about kind of like particular aspects, just narrative aspects of the revolution um, without the musical? Like, I guess there's a positive in that. And also it's like, it's, it's a buy-in. I'll put it this way. So when I was TAing, uh, when I was a teacher assistant for the first half of the U.S. survey one quarter here at Davis, it was taught by uh, Greg Downs. Um, he he actually did a survey the first week of class where he asked students what would they most be interested in learning about in American history um, that would be covered in the course, right, from colonization through the Civil War, and like Hamilton was like one of the top responses, right, and so he found a way to like work Hamilton in. Right. Um, and it was kind of, it's like the, it's the sweetener. It kind of opens the door for you. And there's a positive in that. Um, here's what I think is the negative. Historical accuracy is is not always the most important thing when it comes to, um, historical fiction. Like I don't, I'm not one of those people who thinks that every little factual error or every kind of condensation of a, like, you know, when, something that was fought out over 10 years gets reduced to like a scene. Like I'm not, those things don't bother me, but you know, Miranda made the choice to make Hamilton an immigrant story when Hamilton is not an immigrant in the sense that we would mean now. Um, He's born in the British empire. Right. And then he grows up in the Danish West Indies and then he moves to a different part of the of the British empire. Right. And so he's a British imperial subject by birth. Right. And 
And he moves into the, he moves into North America when it's part of the British empire, when it's not like this nation state. Um, and so I should put it like, it's kind of like going from California um, and moving to New York and saying you're an immigrant. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. And yeah. And I think that like, it works for Miranda to tell a story about, right. He wants to tell a story about how like, um, you know, the U S is diverse at its, at its founding. Right. Which I guess in a broad sense, like culturally, like racially, like, yes, like <clears throat> religiously, like the people that live that in the area, in the colonies that become the United States are diverse in any way you want to put it. But he kind of presents an argument in which like that diversity is like valued and embraced at the time, which I don't think it was. I don't think it was. And Hamilton is often talked about as an outsider. Like John Adams does call him a Creole bastard, right? But the reason he calls him a Creole bastard, it's not necessarily because he's like an immigrant. It's because of these, these American ideas about the Caribbean as this weird mixed race place. Right. And like, that's like what's going on. Right. Is that like, North Americans, especially New Englanders, have this idea that the Caribbean is, well, the white people down there are different, right? right. And that's what's going on, rather than a kind of a kind of like immigrant becoming American story. And I think that I don't know. I mean, it's a choice. It's a choice to use history to tell to to tell an immigrant story, but I think we actually lose a lot of the racial politics of the revolution when we do that. Okay, so I, I completely agree with everything you're saying. Um, I think that the choice to make it an immigrant narrative makes sense from uh, his positionality, um, Lin-Manuel's positionality in New York, right? Yes, I mean, what is New York but a city of, of immigrants? Um, mm-hmm. And I, but I also see like the creolization, right? And you read it as any scholar really America would, which is this is not about creolization that happens. Um, with black and white mixing, this is creolization where British subjects are made into a new type of uh, yeah. person, right? And so mm-hmm. the narrative is much more about moving within the empire than it is coming to a new nation. So I just wanted to affirm that. If you can't tell, I'm totally <laughs> fan girling right now. I will go cool. to the scripted question, though. <laughs> yes, yes, my, no problem. I'm, I'm watching my producer on Zoom looking at me saying, you know, come on now. Um, <laughs> so, so you just laid out everything that you don't necessarily like about Hamilton or what we need to be cautious of. So how do you teach with these musicals? Do you use 1776? Do you use Hamilton? And, and how? Yeah, so... Um, yeah, no, I, I love that question. Um, I do use Hamilton, actually. I use, so there's one song scene in Hamilton, um, I think it's called The World Turned Upside Down, and it's about the Yorktown victory, right? Um, and it's this triumphant story about, you know, and to Miranda's credit, he does it as an unfinished revolution story, right, where the lyrics are about we beat the British, what comes next, Um and there's mentions of now we got to tackle slavery or something to that effect, right? There's a line about slavery in that song, right? And so mm-hmm. it's a song that admit, admits that slavery is present during the revolution, but it also puts a, but we're moving towards an anti-slavery direction in implicit in the lyrics. And so I juxtapose that song with the reality of Yorktown, which is what really happens at Yorktown, right? So 
Cornwallis, we don't have exact numbers, but the estimate is, is that corn, by the time Cornwallis surrenders to Washington, there's probably about 2,000 black loyalists with him inside the fortifications at Yorktown. And long story short, <clears throat> the majority of those black loyalists are surrendered back to Washington. Some are not. Some make it to New York. Some evacuate um, as like officers, servants, um, or uh, black loyalists who were considered quote, uh, particularly quote unquote obnoxious, meaning that like they had reason to fear that they would actually be executed for crimes committed. Um, <clears throat> uh, some of those are evacuated out with Cornwallis back to New York. But the majority of the, the black loyalist survivors of Yorktown are returned to Washington. And so what does Washington do? He appoints a man named David Roth, big Virginia planter and um, ironworks owner. He appoints, he appoints David Roth to be his quote-unquote superintendent of Negroes, who is responsible for returning black loyalists to their owners. Uh-huh. Right? And so <clears throat> no one really knows how, what David Ross does with those people. The assumption is a lot of them do end up back with their owners. Others end up in Virginia Public Works. He writes a letter saying that he's going to send some, send some recaptured black loyalists to the state commissary, um, which, which if he's doing that means they're going to be sent to public works. Um, <clears throat> but, and so in general, what I try to say is that, is I try, uh, by juxtaposing the hopeful message of the song versus the reality of which it's a major, major tragic story for most black people. Uh, Yorktown is right. It's about the re-enslavement when freedom was so close. Um, what I try to do is that Yorktown actually doesn't turn the, turn the world upside down. What it does is like, it puts the world, it, it actually like, I should put it. Yorktown doesn't throw the colonial world upside down. It puts the colonial world back together for black people in a lot of ways, right? If the American revolution is in many ways about colonists fighting to, uh, to take control of colonialism, right? Then we definitely see that with Yorktown, right? It's that it's this army fighting to re-enslave people in certain ways, or at least that's one of the victories for them. Um, and so I know that when I teach it that way, I'm open to the criticism of, well, you're doing the old historian trick of just pouring cold water on everything and no one gets to ever have a happy moment. And all you're always saying is the history is more complex than these triumphant narratives. And I guess I am doing that in some ways, but I also think that it's an important teaching moment that like we can give ourselves a certain narrative about the revolution in which it's the slow, gradual move towards abolition. And maybe if you want to make that argument, you can, if you want to do a, well, there's gradual emancipation and these burgeoning anti-slavery ideas and gradually we're moving towards freedom. Okay. Maybe, but for the survivors of Yorktown, that's not what the revolution was. The, the revolution was their re-enslavement. Right. And I think we need to remember that too. And I mean, it's important to like flag this, that like, England and then more broadly the British Empire was moving towards abolition quicker than what the United States ends up doing anyway. Yeah, no, exactly. Right. And I think honestly, I mean, there's a lot of work out there that says black loyalists play a large role in that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Black loyalists do a lot for the formation of the Sierra Leone colony, right? Mm-hmm. Black loyalists are a major political bloc. Like the American Revolution 
like creates a kind of, it creates a base for these, these anti-slavery writers in the British empire in a lot of ways. So, um, Sean, you're fantastic. Um, mm. and I just want to cue Jessica, uh, cause we're, we're not in person today. So, uh, it's not as simple as oh. me just like nudging her, uh, to be like, this is where we are oh. now. Um, but Sean like so eloquently took us through the next couple of questions. So Jessica, if you want to pick up he really on, he, yeah, I, you know, I, Sean, I did tell Jessica that she was really going to like you, that she was going to be very excited for this. Oh. Um, so, and I, 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 I feel delivering. like, I feel like I can see her smile on, on the camera and I know that she's enjoying this. So, uh, um, but if you could, Jessica, take us in um, to the last question before our game. I could so adaptly do that. I was actually going to send a text or a chat saying, I think he's covered everything. Um, Sean is nothing so, if not efficient. <laughs> so, Sean, both 1776 and Hamilton are founding father great men portrayals of the American Revolution. I sound like this could be a newscast. Great portrayals <laughs> of the American Revolution. How is this history different when, uh, instead, when taking it from the bottom-up approach? Or is there anything else you can tell us um, mm-hmm. based on what you've already um, expanded upon? What happens when we turn the world on its head and look at, look at it from the bottom up? Yeah. No, that's a great question. I think... I'm not sure. I, I feel like I, I can't say anything that hasn't been argued really eloquently by social historians for decades. Um, but when we're talking about the revolution, I think I'll say this. Uh, there's many things I could say, but I'll, I'll leave it at this, which is that I think when we look at the revolution through the great men's story, we typically get the revolution is like an intellectual event. It happens as okay. debates. It happens as a public sphere happens as it's a pamphlet war and then it's convention debates, and then it's treaty making, and then it's like a constitutional convention, and it's always an intellectual event, right? And maybe we'll talk about the war, but that that war is just to kind of glorify Washington and show how he's like being like prepped for leadership, essentially. Um, and <clears throat> I think when we look at the revolution from the con from the context of everyday people we really realized that the revolution, I mean, it had an intellectual side, there's no doubt, but the revolution was also violent. It was visceral. Um, and it was transformative to a lot of people. Um, some positive, some negative, right? That for, how should I put it? Like for enslaved people in particular, the revolution is like a dramatic intervention in their lives. Yes. It creates opportunities by crisis. The revolution does create chaos on the ground that enslaved people can use to flee to freedom in different, or engage in marinage uh, in different ways. <clears throat> but the revolution is also patriot press gangs, right? It's warfare. It's these different things. It's starvation as the army takes, like, as the army raids your slave garden plots, which they do all the time, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> and so the revolution is like this dramatic act of violence in their lives. And I think we lose sight of that when we, um, and that's true, not just for enslaved people, but for all kinds of participants in the revolution. And I think we lose sight of that. We lose sight of the bodily experience and the loss and the tragedies of the revolution. When we just talk about it as like an, an almost like kind of like Hegelian sense of just ideas unfolding. 
And so I think that's what's important with the social history there. Join us in our next episode as we conclude our conversation with Sean Gallagher. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com where you can propose your own episode topic, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at historiansh. And don't forget, you can like and review the podcast on your podcast platform. Thank you, Sean Gallagher. This show was brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Lara Loper, Luis Asio de Dios, and the Agipon Foundation. And remember, scholars do bravo too. why they call Casey the one take wonder. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.